Today in the Dan Cave, we say farewell to the king as Felix Hernandez brings his Mariners career to a close on an emotional night at Safeco Field. The Seahawks try to bounce back from a tough loss to the Saints, but is their conservative approach early in games working against them? And is it too early to start thinking about life after Mike Leach on the Palouse? I'll dig into that and more next in the Dan Cave. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. All right, everybody, welcome back into the Dan Cave, episode 52. I am your host, Dan Vienz. And while most of this show is dominated by talk of a couple of tough losses on the football field, the headline is indisputable. It is King Felix. Here comes Scott. The end of an era. The King and his court one final time. Long live the King. Long live the King indeed. Hernandez facing the Oakland A's last night in, without question, what will be his last appearance as a Seattle Mariner. His seven-year, $175 million deal comes to an end. Mariners in full rebuild mode now. Felix a shell of his former self at the age of 33. Will certainly not be back. Acquitted himself well last night. Walked the bases loaded in the first inning. No doubt he was he was feeling the emotions um, and the gravity of the moment. Ended up going five and a third. Gave up five hits, three runs. Walked the four, struck out three. The Mariners lose three to one to drop to sixty six and ninety three on the year. The A's meanwhile can clinch a playoff spot tonight at Safeco. They move to ninety six and sixty three. Felix finishes this season one win, eight losses, an ERA north of six. Certainly not um, not what we have come to expect from Felix over the years, but we've seen this decline coming for a, a couple of seasons now. But but the focus certainly is not going to be on that today, nor should it be. Felix made his debut in 2005 at the age of 19. With that afro, couldn't keep his baseball hat on. He threw so hard, it knocked his hat off. In 2009, really his breakthrough season, went 19-5 and with a 2.49 ERA. Finished second in the Cy Young that year. Won the Cy Young in 2010 despite a 13-12 and record. But his ERA of 2.27 was good enough. Between 2008 and 2015, he averaged... 224 and two-thirds innings pitched a season. Never appeared in a playoff game. The closest he came, if you remember, 2014. I remember sitting at the Ram at Kent Station watching that game. It was Felix on the hill. The Mariners needed to win, and they needed the A's to lose. The Mariners were facing the Angels at home, and Felix was up to the task. He was brilliant that day. Only one hit and five and a third. He didn't walk a batter. He struck out seven. But Oakland won and clinched the wild card. That was the closest Felix Hernandez came to pitching in the playoffs and maybe gave you a glimpse of what he might have done in the playoffs, given the opportunity. Because that that game, up until, I want to say, I think it was the fourth or fifth inning maybe when, when the 
A's score became final, and so they knew that whether they won or lost wasn't going to matter. He still, it, it, he took the mound that day feeling like that was a do-or-die playoff-type atmosphere game, and he was certainly up to the moment. He won 169 games over his career, a career ERA of 3.42, a career FIP of 3.52. It's outstanding. 2,524 strikeouts, seven All-Star games, finished in the top 10 in the Cy Young voting six times, including two runner-up finishes in addition to his one win. And the year Corey Kluber won it, I think that was 2015. You can make the argument that Felix got robbed that year. So what is the legacy of number 34? What are we going to remember when we look back at Felix Hernandez? Hopefully it's not how he pitched the last two years, and I don't think it will be. Hopefully... It's as one of the dominant pitchers in baseball over a span of about 10 years, because that's what he was. What most fans will probably bring up is that the Mariners wasted his prime years. I think his legacy uh, is twofold. One, of being a guy that's loyal. He had chances to go elsewhere. He didn't have to sign that big extension. He wanted to stay in Seattle. He didn't want to go to a bigger organization. Didn't want to go to the Yankees or the Dodgers just to chase a ring. He wanted that to happen here. Ultimately, it never did. But it was more important to him to stay in Seattle and chase a playoff game than it was to go somewhere where winning a title might have come easier for him. I remember... During his prime, I had a lot of conversations with with friends and other fans. If you remember for a couple years running there, the topic was, should they trade Felix? They're not going anywhere. They don't really look like a team that's going to be a true contender on any kind of a consistent basis. Why not trade him in his prime when he could bring back something to build around in return. And, and my answer to that, and, and I was back then more so on the side of trading him. But as I look back now, I realize that it wouldn't have produced the result that I was hoping for because none of the GMs he played for were very skilled at the art of the deal. I mean, if Jerry DePoto had been his general manager when he was 26, 27 years old. Now maybe you're talking, but Bill Bavese, Jack Zarenchik, those guys just weren't very skilled traders. They just weren't. And I don't believe we ever would have maximized Felix's trade value. It was fun having him around. It was fun watching the King's court grow. And I think his legacy will be of a guy who wanted to stay here and who went out and battled and had grit and pitched well even on teams that were so lousy offensively. He knew every time he took the bump that he had to pitch a shutout to have a chance to win. Now, one thing that I think is a fallacy that some people will look back and say is that 
the Mariners ruined him, that he was overused. That they there was there were just too many miles on that arm, and that he wore down because of it, and that the team's to blame. They could have managed his workload better. They could have built better bullpens. They could have they they could have not let him win those arguments when the manager would go out to the mound with the intent of taking him out of the game, and they would let Felix talk himself into staying in the game. But I went back and looked at something. I had a hunch, and sometimes you have a gut feeling or you have a hunch and you go to look at the statistics and you find out that your argument was was way wrong. And the numbers don't lie and the numbers tell a different story. In this case, it, it, it confirms my hunch. Felix pitched for 15 seasons in the major leagues. Over that span, he logged 2,729 and two-thirds innings. Justin Verlander is also completing his 15th season in the major leagues. He has pitched 2,976 innings. 250 more innings than Felix over the same span. And Verlander is three years older than Felix. Yet Verlander is still throwing in the high 90s will be in the Cy Young conversation this year, can make the argument he's as good as he's ever been. Maybe, while the argument of of pure overuse doesn't hold up when you look at Verlander, although human beings are all different from each other, maybe Felix just didn't have as many miles in that arm as Verlander did. Maybe it's something mechanically. But how can Verlander at the age of 36 still be throwing 97, still be throwing gas and striking guys out, pitching at a high level, leading his team to World Series, when Felix at 33 is spent, can barely throw 90 anymore after living at 95 early in his career? There may be an argument to be made that he was brought up too early and there was too much put on his plate too early. Again, using that same comparison, Verlander pitched in college at Old Dominion, pitched one season in the minor leagues through 118 innings at the age of 21 in the minors, made his major league debut at the age of 22 through about 170 innings his rookie year, and then went on to pitch 15 years in the majors. Felix, although he did pitch 306 innings in the minors, but was brought up at the age of 19. And by his second or his first full season in the majors at the age of 20, um, threw over 180 innings, and then he went through that stretch where he averaged uh, 224. So maybe that's it. Or maybe it's just two different bodies, two different arms, two different guys, two different outcomes. Overall, what his legacy should be and will be is one of the great Mariners we will ever see. And a guy, much like Edgar Martinez, who wanted to be here. Now, once his playing career is done, he says he's not going to retire. I find it hard to believe anyone's going to sign him next year to anything other than a minor league deal with an invite to spring training. Is he a Hall of Famer? And I, I think I'll use the comparison to Edgar again. I think it might be real similar. 
he's 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 borderline the 160 is it 169 wins that's certainly going to work against him the rest of the numbers are outstanding uh all the top 10 Cy Young finishes work in his favor the 10 year run being one of the dominant right-handers in baseball work in his favor he might have a similar case it may play out in a similar way that it did for Edgar, where he's not going to make it in on one of the first ballots, but maybe near the end of his inclusion on the ballot, his eligibility, um, a case will be made, and uh, and eventually he'll get in. Or maybe he's a guy that has to wait for uh, the Veterans Committee to put him in. It'll be an interesting case, certainly. But um, it was it was cool to watch last night. I love his reaction. Um, it's got to be bittersweet for him because he knows he knows he's done. He doesn't want to be done, but he knows he is. He knows the Mariners are in a different place, and that they want to be done with him. From a practical baseball standpoint, now the Mariners have almost thirty million dollars in payroll coming off the books for next year um, but it's too early to talk about how that might be used we'll do more of that in the weeks ahead but um, farewell to a king uh, Felix you were great and we loved having you and uh, I think once we get past this season we put a little distance in the rearview mirror uh, we'll forget about how lousy he was the last couple of years and we'll just remember the dominant run he had and what a great mariner he was so there's a reason that I don't record this podcast on Mondays or even Tuesdays, early in the week. Sometimes I need a few days to collect my thoughts and to deal with the emotional side of what I may have witnessed over the weekend. And this was a tough weekend for me, a real tough weekend. We're going to talk about the Seahawks first, obviously. Most of you who listen to this um, listen for the Seahawks content. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, are University of Washington fans, and so you don't love the WSU content. But I got hit with double barrels this weekend. Not only a tough loss by the Seahawks, but a historically tough loss by the Cougs, and uh, I'm going to talk about both those things um, because I think there's there's some interesting angles coming out of both those results. Uh, first, let's talk about the Seahawks. They drop one, 33 to 27 at home to a Drew Breesless New Orleans team in the rain. A game that was not that close, though. They came out flat. They did nothing on offense early again. They gave up a touchdown on a punt return. Uh, Chris Carson had a costly fumble that was returned for a touchdown, his third fumble in three games. No one's making any impact plays on defense. Um, And I want to focus on these slow starts. All three games this season, the first two drives of the game have resulted in a punt. And Sunday was especially egregious. The, The team just looked like it showed up Un, unprepared false start penalty 
I think on the first play. Out of sync. Couldn't get anything going. Just looked flat like they weren't ready. I know they like to win the toss and defer. Start out on defense. They have the ball first in this game. But that's that's no excuse. In trying to pinpoint the reason for these slow starts, I think some of it is mentality. It's a mindset. Some of it is philosophy. And those two very much work hand in hand. Here's offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer explaining why they don't open the offense up early in games. And I want you to listen closely to this. It's hard to go out when a defense is fresh and spread them out and just try to throw it all over the yard because they're fresh and they're attacking and things like that. What helps is obviously we kind of wear them down. And of course, Russ is so magical in a lot of ways of getting getting out of trouble. Um, you know, a lot of times it's just like, you know, you're like, what is he doing? And then he kind of gets out of there. But uh, the problem with playing that way would be just you'd be concerned about, okay, they know you want to do that and they're fresh and here they come and they're getting on your edge and they're making you step up into traffic and things like that. That's, that's where it's usually with most teams, we're no different than most teams, is when you wear them down, it works. So I'm going to try to translate this. The question that was posed to him was, gosh, when when you guys are behind or it's late in a half or late in a game and you're behind the eight ball and you go into the hurry-up offense and you throw the ball around the yard, you always seem to be effective. You move the ball, you score. Why don't you do that earlier? And that was his answer to that. And I've listened to it 20 or 30 times and it, it drives me absolutely crazy the more I listen to it. What he's what he's trying to say, what he thinks he's saying, what he thinks makes sense is we like to use the run to set up the pass. We like to establish a physical nature. Similar to a boxer, we like, we like to deliver some body blows, hit him inside, establish the line of scrimmage, soften the defense up for big shots in the passing game later, and then when they get tired, we can throw it around a little bit. What's wrong with this is that everybody knows that that's what they're doing. And what's really, really wrong with it is is the part in that, that comment where he says it's hard to open up the offense early because teams are fresh and they know it's coming and they can defend you sideline to sideline. So, help me out here. If teams know you're going to open it up early and they're fresh, they're going to be able to defend that. But you're saying, and you're announcing it to everyone, you're acknowledging that this is what you do. We're going to be conservative. We're going to play it close to the vest. We're going to run the football early. But teams know that's coming too. So guess what? They can stack the box. And you think you're delivering body blows, but you're also not forcing them to defend the whole field. It it drives me crazy. This isn't 1980. You can't just line up and dominate a team because you're tougher or more talented. Every week now, you face good defensive fronts. This is a league that has evolved. 
It's more now about the element of surprise, of misdirection, of unpredictability. Look at the most dynamic offenses in the league. Kansas City, New England, the LA Rams, the 49ers are getting into that conversation. These are teams that come out aggressively, trying to score. Putting you on your heels, making you defend the entire field. That's how you wear defenses down. Defenses are getting smaller. Linebackers are getting smaller. Teams are playing more nickel and dime coverage throughout the majority of the games. You wear those guys down by running them. And when you face those offenses as a defense, you know they're going to attack you, but you don't know from which angle they're going to attack you. It plays into a mentality. I think, I truly believe one of the main reasons this offense comes out and looks so sluggish and unprepared is because they're not engaged. They don't believe in the game plan. They know they're going to be conservative. It's been communicated to them that this is the way they're going to play the game early. So there's no edge. There's no intensity. There's no excitement. The offense knows they're going to be running plays. The defense is expecting. And you're wasting your best talent. You're wasting your best player, and that's Russell Wilson. Think about the dangerous teams, teams you don't want to face in the league right now. Last night's game, first first series of the game, Packers hit a deep ball to Adams for a score. Look at the way the Eagles forced the action early in that game. And what's crazy to me is Carroll has seen this work around him in his own division. And now the offensive coordinator is telling the world that this is what they do. I don't know if this is a great analogy, but but it popped into my head. Imagine a pitcher in baseball stating for the record, nah, you know what? I don't like using my breaking stuff early. So I'm just going to throw my four-seam fastball the first couple innings. And then I'll mix in my slider, change, and curve later on. You've seen Bull Durham, right? (laughs) What happens when big league hitters know the fastball is coming? Well, what happens when even mediocre defenses in the NFL know you're going to run the football? And it wasn't always this way. Those Super Bowl teams, they jumped on teams quickly. But they had more of an underdog mentality then, a chip on their shoulder. They're not playing with that anymore. I hate it. And it brings up a big question that I have about Carroll, and it's growing. Is the league passing him by? It it happened to Mike Holmgren at the end. The league figured out his offense... And he was too stubborn to change it. And it caught up to him. It's happened to a lot of damn good coaches. Is it happening to Carroll? He himself wasn't prepared to play Sunday. I don't think he took this game as seriously as he should. I don't think he thought the Saints were going to be as formidable without Brees. That's inexcusable for a team that was built with as deep and talented and young as this roster is. 
Horrible clock management, bad coaching decisions, and what's worse is afterwards he admitted that he had a bad day and he said, on the record, maybe I need to be more conservative. Maybe I need to think twice about going forward on fourth down from now on and just kick the ball. More conservative? I'm a bit worried for this team. The next two weeks are crucial. This week's tricky. On paper, everything says the Seahawks should handle Arizona without a problem. Their weaknesses match up with our strengths. They can't protect their quarterback. The quarterback's young. But they have nothing to prove and they're playing on their home field. And then they come home on a short week and play the Rams. As positive as I was coming out of the pit game, because I, I thought we saw some things. I thought we saw a different approach on offense. Quicker passing game, being aggressive. This could get right. The season could either get right back on track or it could fall off the rails in a hurry. A big win in Arizona. Come home, play well against the Rams. And all your goals are still probably in front of you. But if things go south on Sunday, the season could go south. And then we're going to be having a discussion about the head coach. couple other concerns I have uh, there's nobody making impact plays on defense no one's knocking the ball loose no one's coming even close to intercepting passes we're not getting to the quarterback we got C. Ziggy, Ansa, Njadevi and Clowney play together for the first time but Clowney didn't make any plays doesn't look like a dominant game changing type player now this was the knock on him coming out of Houston great run defender productive pass rusher but not a guy who's consistently dominant. A guy who relies more on strength than refined pass rush moves. He's not beating tackles to the edge. And Ansa was invisible. That's excusable. It's understandable. He didn't play uh, for most of last year. You can expect him to be rusty. But I'm already asking myself if Clowney is a guy that's worth a big Frank Clark or D Ford type contract. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, We'll see how the pass rush develops this week because Arizona has been terrible. They've given up the second most sacks in the league and Murray's been hit the second most of any quarterback even though he's the most athletically dynamic quarterback in the league. That's how bad that Arizona offensive line has been. So they have to get pressure this week. Carolina harassed Murray consistently last week. The Seahawks have to be able to do the same, or we're going to have some real concerns when they face a team like the Rams. Uh, Trey Flowers concerns me. Um, I think he needs to be on a short leash. He gives up way too much ground. He's not making any plays on the ball. He looks passive. Doesn't look instinctive. Doesn't have the kind of break on the ball that you'd like to see from a starting corner. But there's no one to push him either. I really wish they had kept Deshaun Shedd. I think he showed enough in training camp. Um, I think he could start in place of Flowers and that defense would be better today. But it really worries me that this defense isn't making any plays. And in particular, what I was excited about this defense, and we talked about it all during the offseason, ever since April. 
and all through the preseason, when we saw the signs of it in practice and in the preseason games, they drafted a bunch of playmakers. They drafted guys like Amadi and Blair and Burke Curvin and Barton. And Burke Curvin and Barton aren't going to play much just because you can't argue with the, the linebackers that we have. But the other guys aren't getting a shot to make some plays in the in the secondary. They're just not playing. Again, it plays into my suspicion that Carroll is, is I don't know. You know, those first few years when they were going to the Super Bowl, they were playing like a team that wanted to prove themselves to the world. They didn't play scared. They played with their hair on fire. They let it all hang out. They didn't worry about making mistakes. I feel like they're playing like a team that's afraid to make a mistake now. And that's not going to get you very far. All right, let me talk about this WSU loss uh, so I can flush it. Uh, Obviously, unless you were out of the country for the last week, you know that they had a 32-point lead in the third quarter at home against UCLA, a bad team, and they lost. They found a way to lose. Uh, The most common question I've gotten from people this week that know I'm a Coug is, what happened? And my answer is, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Some of it was bad luck. The two fumble calls that were reversed uh, by Pac-12 officials were, to me, a joke. Both of them. On the first one, it was clear that the elbow was down before the ball moved. And that was a killer. And on the last one, the Des Patman ball, that where, where the Cougs just needed a first down to ice the game, I don't believe there was enough evidence that the ball was moving after the elbow was down. But you can't blame this game on the refs. Cougs gave it away. Special teams that we thought were fixed last year give up two kick return touchdowns. Defense couldn't tackle anyone. Secondary was horrible. No pressure on the quarterback. Anthony Gordon looked special. Threw nine touchdown passes. Broke Minshew's record. And lost. He looks really special. We're going to be talking about him come draft time. I think he has a chance to be the best pro quarterback WSU's produced in quite some time. But we got to talk about Mike Leach. Now, I'm hearing a lot of criticism this week that he simply just needs to run the ball more, especially late in games when they have a lead. Here's my retort to that. They're not built for it. They have the wide splits, the offense. This offense is true air raid. It's not the evolved version. He's very stubborn. And he is stuck with the air raid in its pure form that he learned and he helped develop with Hal Mummy. And, and some of that's admirable. Because, man, when it's good, it's good. And they're good at it. So I admire the commitment to the offense, but here's the problem with it. Games like that, obviously, when you need to run the ball, you can be effective running the ball. Max Borgie had a nice game Sunday. Had the long touchdown run. You can hit him once in a while. But when you have to run the ball and the other team knows you have to run the ball, you're not built for it. So you have to try to throw for first downs to ice games away. And then you're susceptible to things like turnovers. 
it also struggles as the season goes along because we've seen how bad weather can hinder the air raid. Obviously, the best example of that is the Apple Cup, but we've seen it at other times too. Cold rain. Playing in Pullman, man. November, December is not kind up there. And you have to have a defense to get some stops. UCLA's quarterback had been really struggling, and the Cougs let him off the hook, let him throw for 400 yards. Leach's commitment to that offense has helped raise the program up from the ashes. It's in great shape now. New facilities, better recruiting than ever. They're on national TV a lot. It's reached a point now, though, where I'm afraid it can't go any higher. I don't think you can have 10 and 11 win seasons committing to this version of the air raid. You're likely stuck in that middle ground now where they're, they'll always be expected to win seven to nine games a year and go to small to mid-level bowls. But the fan base is going to start demanding more, and they should. As much as I love Leach, man, I'm asking the question, is it time to move on from him? We'll see. They're just as likely to go to Utah and beat a good Utes team this week. Leach's teams have done that over the last couple of years. They can get back on track. Gordon is special. They're going to score. Tracy Clay is a good defensive coordinator. They'll improve some things there. Recruiting's going well. It's a young roster. There's reasons to believe they'll stay competitive for years to come. But will it simply be competitive in that that window, that seven to nine win window. Can they ever get to the next level? And don't tell me you can't win in Pullman. You can't. The facilities are there now, the scholarship limitations, even the playing field. You can recruit there. They've proven that. I think you have to stick with a wide open offense, but you can adapt it. Leach's protégés, guys from his coaching tree that have gone on to have success in other places as coordinators and head coaches. Have, have added in a physical running game to it. Most, most of them have added it in the form of RPOs and the read option and had great success doing that. Leach refuses to. I don't believe he would be fired unless this season goes completely in the toilet. I think he would have to move on on his own. Take another job, find a new challenge. But I trust Pat Chun, the Washington State University AD, more than any AD we've had in the last 20 years to make a solid hire. And maybe the direction to turn, and I know I'm putting the cart way ahead of the horse here. I'm just saying because I do believe you'd have to keep some continuity in the offense. But there's some young leech disciples out there. Graham Harrell is the offensive coordinator at USC right now. Runs the air raid, but they run the football. Sonny Cumbie, former Texas Tech quarterback under Leach, is the offensive coordinator at TCU. They, they run the air raid, they run the football. Just saying, it's way too early to speculate, but that's how bad that loss was. That it makes that question a legitimate one. I hate it, but that's the reality of it. I think these questions are justified. Uh, quick recap of my NFL picks for last week. I won. Actually tied for first place out of 84 uh, people that are in our 
our uh, pool league. Um, but I didn't get to celebrate for very long because this week's already been ruined. I made last night my top game of the week. I put all 16, uh, my 16-pointer my I put on the Packers. Um, so <laughs> the weekend is shot. I was excited about some of my other strategic plays over the weekend, but when you drop your 16-pointer on Thursday, uh, the weekend is over before it begins. I've, I tend to stay away from big points on Thursday for that reason. It can be an unpredictable day, and you don't want to ruin your weekend. Um, I just felt that good about that Green Bay defense playing at home. The home team usually wins on Thursday night, and I thought the Eagles were struggling. Um, I didn't see that coming. Some really questionable uh, play calling by Matt LaFleur there, especially in the red zone, obviously to not score uh, on the first and goal situation and to not take the points and kick it on fourth and goal uh, was a mistake. And then uh, I don't know what the NFL's thinking with the pass interference thing because that play on Devontae Adams um, that was uh, that Lafleur challenged and that was not uh, reversed, not called pass interference, where Adams was clearly interfered with. Um, I just I don't know what pass interference is anymore, if that's the case. The, the game ender, the interception by the Eagles, were the, you know, if you slow it down, you look at it frame by frame, look like the DB got there just a tick early. I think that's a bang-bang play. Um, I can see that one going. Um, but tough week already for me on the picks. But good news, bad news on the fantasy front. A 167-129 win. I moved to 2-1 and one on the season. Big weeks from Dalvin Cook. A big week finally. Mike Evans breaks out. Had to overcome another bad quarterback outing. Only nine points from Kyler Murray. He was up to 19 at one point, and then he threw two late picks. Uh, but the bad news is Saquon Barkley. Uh, my running back um, core continues to be depleted. I lost Darius Geis for most of the season in the first game, and now Barkley's out six to eight weeks with a bad ankle sprain, maybe longer than that. Damian Williams is also hurt. My running back room is a mash unit. I had to pick up uh, Adrian Peterson to start alongside Cook. My only other option was Peyton Barber. I was actually fortunate that somebody waived Peterson this week because he's clearly the number one guy in Washington. Um, hopefully that'll get me through. And I made, uh, man, I went back and forth. I think I I think I picked up and dropped about eight quarterbacks this week on the waiver wire, but I'm going uh, to go with Kyle Allen. I think he might be legit, and there's talk out of Carolina that uh, the Panthers are going to really take their time bringing Cam Newton back because they like what Kyle Allen does, that that wasn't a fluky game throwing for uh, four touchdowns in his debut last week. Also made a sneaky little move this week I'm excited about that might help the running back room here in, in two weeks. Uh, Tevin Coleman was sitting out there on waivers. The 49ers are on a bye. He's coming off the injury. He's expected to play next week. And so I may have um, um, found a sneaky little running back move there as well that's going to do it for this week uh episode 52 again thank you for all the support thank you for listening uh please hit that subscribe button so you get notifications on when new episodes come out each week follow me on twitter at seahawks forever and also uh listen to the show on youtube and if you're ever in downtown historic snoqualmie swing on by the woodman lodge and say hi talk some sports with me i'll be behind the bar tuesday through saturday we'll be back next week with a look back at the seahawks and cardinals Hopefully everything will be fine and we can start talking about the Rams game with some sense of optimism and the offseason starts for the Mariners 
I'll start digging into some potential free agents who might make sense for the ends next week. Until then, thanks again for listening. I'm Dan Viennes. Go Mariners. Go Seahawks. Go Cougs.